Uh, as we meet here early in the new year, one of the things I would love to do for you tonight is to train your gaze on Christ Jesus. Uh, so I'll, I'll pray for us now that that would be exactly what happens tonight. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have of opening your word, of hearing it proclaimed, and of having your Holy Spirit in and amongst us, changing us more and more into the image of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. I pray that that is exactly what would happen right now. We pray that uh, with an expectant heart, knowing that you love transforming your saints more and more into the image of Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Well, Soul Church, I wonder, when you think about Jesus, what is it that you think about? So when his name comes up, what image are you actually pulling to mind at that stage? You might, you might think of a Middle Eastern man, uh, and he's wandering around the Middle East with other Middle Eastern men doing all kinds of interesting things there. And if, you, if you're pulling that picture to mind, you've at least passed the first test, uh, which is thinking about Jesus as a brown guy. He was not a white Anglo-Saxon, as you might see in many of these paintings. He was about as white as I am black, uh, which is to say not very. Um, but there's more to the picture when it comes to seeing Jesus Christ. Yes, uh, he was a Middle Eastern man on earth 2,000 years ago. He walked around, he did miracles, he healed people, he taught, he died and he rose again. But that's, while that's the truth, there's actually more to the truth than that. See, in Philippians 2, we actually see here that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself. It says he took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. See, on earth, Jesus' glory was actually veiled. It was masked. It was hidden. A local church recently had a sermon series saying that Jesus was God unmasked. Uh, and there's a sense in which that's true. Jesus is God among us. There's another sense, though, in which that's actually false, isn't there? Uh, Jesus is actually God masked, isn't he? He's God, Philippians 2 language, he's God emptied or veiled. The reason I say that is, is that when you think of Jesus, you can't just think of his earthly ministry. Because Jesus has actually now gone from that humble state and he's been gloriously exalted for the rest of eternity. If you saw him now, soul church, he wouldn't look like a Middle Eastern man. In fact, if you saw him now, you'd either kneel and worship him or you'd die. And the biblical weight of the evidence seems to suggest that you'd probably die. So you, you know that Jesus heals, you know that Jesus helps and he guides and he loves. But as you walk out those doors tonight, Soul Church, I want you to know that Jesus reigns. He reigns as king on his throne over everything. It's a total reign, a final reign. He's not just Lord of our heart. He's not just Lord of heaven. He's actually Lord over everything, full stop. That's what we sing when we teach our kids during the kids' songs, when we say Jesus is the boss. That's what we mean by that, isn't it? He's the authority above which there is no other authority. He's the judge beyond which there is no court of appeal. He's the Lord Jesus. He reigns with no leftovers. And no remainders. And that's my big idea tonight, Soul Church. Jesus reigns. And the structure of this sermon is very similar uh, to an epistle, perhaps, from the Apostle Paul. It's all the theology up front uh, and all the application down back. So to do the theology, we're going to survey a few passages uh, that will show us about the life of Christ and his present reign. And then we'll push that idea into some corners 
as we reach the back half of the sermon. So let's go to our first uh, passage tonight. We didn't have this one in the reading. This is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. That'll be up on the screen behind me. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, this is the disciples speaking, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So we've just jumped there right into the last frame of Christ's earthly ministry. He lived a perfect life, full obedience to the Father. He followed the law perfectly And then he died on a cross so that anyone who believes in him and trusts in his sacrifice in their place may receive eternal life. He died, he rose again, he defeated sin, death and the devil. And what we see here is that he actually ascends up into heaven. Now ask yourself this, why did the Holy Spirit, through the human author Luke of course, see fit to mention that it was a cloudy day? Why is that a detail? that we get. Well, I'll put it to you, Soul Church, that's not just a detail that we get. That may, in fact, be one of the most important details that we have on this passage. Because now we're going to go from that first passage in Acts chapter 1 to our second passage in Daniel 7 that we had read out. Let me read that again for you. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So we saw in Acts chapter 1, we saw clouds. Now in Daniel chapter 7, we see clouds. And here's the important detail, soul church. They're the same clouds. They're the same clouds. Jesus went up in Acts 1 on the clouds and what we see then in Daniel 7 is the continuation of that, up in those clouds into the throne room of heaven. What we see in Daniel 7, it happened 2,000 years ago, right after he ascended. What you see behind me, that's not prophecy. That's not in our future. That's history. That's in our past. That has happened. In Daniel 7, 2,000 years ago, we see... Jesus was crowned, he was coronated with an undisputed, unparalleled rule over everyone and everything. We see here his rule is is both intensive and extensive. It's extensive in the way that it extends to the whole created order. From your backyard to the most remote star in the most distant galaxy at the edge of the universe, Christ is Lord of the whole lot of it. It's extensive. It's also intensive, going down to the smallest possible part. Every atom, every molecule is the property of Christ Jesus. He lived, he died, and he ascended to the throne, and now there is actually nothing big or small that escapes his rule. Have a look at this passage in Colossians chapter 1. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him, in Christ, 
all the fullness of God was placed to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, if you look at that text, what we see there, look at what happened on the cross. When we're talking about Jesus' total reign over everything, well, what happened on the cross? Through the blood of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, everything has been reconciled to God. All of heaven, all of earth. Jesus didn't just come for our souls to whisk them away to heaven while the earth goes to custard beneath us. Jesus came for everything and he actually got it all on the cross. All things have been reconciled to God by Christ and his death on the cross. That's not a future hope for us Christians. That's a present reality. American pastor Douglas Wilson notes that when the devil was tempting Jesus with all the kingdoms of the earth, I wonder if you remember that in the Gospels, the devil says, look, bow down, worship me, and I'll give you everything. Jesus didn't say no thanks. He didn't say no because he didn't want them. He said no because he didn't want them that way. Jesus didn't want to steal what he was determined to earn rightfully. See, Jesus was coming for the world. He was coming for the kingdoms of the world, and the devil knew it, and he tried to lie. And he tried to cheat. But friends, Jesus isn't a puppet king because of a shady backroom deal with the devil. He's actually the rightful king because of his death, resurrection, and coronation. So in our first text, in Acts 1, we see Jesus ascend into heaven. And then in Daniel 7, we see him coronated, enthroned as king. And in the third passage we're going to look at tonight, we're going to see, well, what's Jesus up to? He's on the throne. We know this. What's he up to? While he's up there. And many have, many have said Psalm 110 is actually God's favourite psalm. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's the psalm uh, which is most often quoted. It's the Old Testament passage that's most frequently quoted in the New Testament. So let's read through Psalm 110 again. I'll read the whole thing here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of your wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, the key part of Psalm 110 we're going to look at here is, is verse 1. David here speaks of an intra-Trinitarian, so within the Trinity, conversation. God the Father, he speaks to God the Son, and he invites him. He invites him in to sit in a place of power and authority at his right hand. That's actually the same image we've just seen in Daniel 7. So Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 are describing a very well, the same thing. Jesus is enthroned as king, but this passage in Psalm 110, it gives us a really good insight into what that rule will look like. Because the Bible is full of ordinary kings or bad kings. It's not just automatically good news to know that there's someone on the throne. Well, what kind of king are they going to be? How are they going to act? What are they going to do? Well, in, in short, here is what the reign of Christ Jesus will be like. He's a good king and he'll overcome evil. 
Every rebel power, Psalm 110 tells us, will be put under his foot. And this also gives us some interesting information about when the world will end. I wonder if you think about that very much. A lot of people are saying, well, with everything that's going on, the end can't be near. I actually think the opposite is true. I think it means the end's a long way away. Because uh, and, and, what we should expect to see is actually Christ's enemies being made a footstool for his feet. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what he says. He's, he's talking about the end. And he, and he says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And talking of Christ here, he says this. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's interesting. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and that the last enemy to be defeated is death. That's a very clear picture of the end of the world there, isn't it, Soul Church? It should give you hope. And I'll touch on that more later, but the end's not going to be catastrophic. Jesus is actually going to destroy every authority, every power that opposes him, and not just heavenly authorities, earthly authorities too. And then he will return. So we look around, we see rebel powers, we see authorities that are raised up against Christ, and I think that tells us there's still a way to go. Many theologians suggest that we're even still in the early church period. Of course, it seems a long time to us. The church was founded 2,000 years ago, but perhaps in 50,000 years, I'll look back on this first 2,000 as the early church period. As the kingdom of heaven grows like leaven through a loaf, or like the smallest tree growing into the largest, uh, smallest seed growing into the largest tree. So we've learned here what the Messiah is going to be like. He's going to be victorious. And we learned that actually all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. I wonder if you had that rolling around in your brain as I was talking here. After the sin of Adam and Eve, after the world was plunged into a curse, God then curses the serpent, the devil. And this is what he says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head you will strike his heel. So what kind, of Jesus, what kind of king is Jesus going to be? Jesus is a head-crushing king. Jesus is the head-crusher. That's what we see here in Genesis 3, isn't it? So it's a very quick tour of a few main passages about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Acts 1, he ascends up after his earthly ministry, and we pick that up in uh, in Daniel 7, where he's crowned, he goes up in the clouds, he appears up in the clouds in Daniel 7, he's crowned, he gets all power and authority and dominion, and then we see in Psalm 110 what Christ will do on the throne, where he's given all authority, he will bring his adversaries into submission as Christ's enemies are made a footstool. So that's the big idea of my sermon, is that Jesus reigns, he reigns right now over everything. And now I want to look at actually applying that truth to our lives. Now, some people uh, apply in their sermon. They do application like a sniper shot. It's one point right at the end and just goes straight for the heart. I'm a big fan of what I like to call uh, the spray and pray. So you just put out five or six things and hopefully everyone is impacted by at least one of those sorts of things. Uh, here we go. First point of application. So we're in the back half now. Number one, Soul Church, tell yourself a better story. 
So our lives are a story. The history of the world is a story. We exist, all of us, in the narrative that God is writing. And God's people need to understand, we desperately need to understand, what kind of story we're in. Our story is actually a story of victory and triumph. Our story is about a Lord and Saviour who brings all his enemies under his feet. Christians should be optimists. We don't know, of course, what the future will bring, but we do know who the king is going to be, don't we? Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord today. He will be Lord tomorrow and every day after that until he brings this age to a close. So as Christians, we should have an unflinching, steadfast belief that God is actually using every circumstance, every part of our story for our good and for the good of his church. And you can see this here in a very famous passage. Many of you will have this in the mind already. Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So your story, uh, Soul Church, like any story, will have ups and downs. But unlike most other stories, we are told, we know that in every circumstance we find ourselves... It will be good for us and it will be good for the kingdom of God. God is a master storyteller and he calls our lives to unfold in such a way that, uh, that it will always be for our benefit. Our lives are not the sort of grisly, gritty story that fizzles out to a bitter end. Because God is a storyteller and we're made in his image, we're actually also storytellers ourselves. We tell ourselves stories about what it's like to be human, about what it's like to be us. We can tell ourselves stories where we're always getting the raw end of the deal. We can tell ourselves stories where no one cares about us or God's forgotten us. I exhort you, Soul Church, to remind yourself of the story you're in. It's an amazing story, a story ultimately of glory and triumph where every tragedy and every victory was actually planned for you and planned for your good. You're part of the greatest story ever told, crafted by the greatest storyteller of all. Remind yourself of this story, Soul Church. Look to the future. Don't flinch. Don't be anxious. Look out with a settled confidence. That's number one. Number two, tell your children a better story. Now, there's an old photo of Moses, but I wonder if you can read what that says. That's my son, Moses. He's got a onesie on that says, Big Optimist. It's the God-given duty of parents to raise their children to fear God and walk in his ways. And we see that all through the scriptures. The Apostle Paul mentions it as he's giving his exhortations at the end of Ephesians. This is what he says, Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it is the calling of parents to nurture their children. Even more broadly, as an aside, it's the, it's the job of a Christian community also. When my son was baptised up here, Soul Church took a baptismal oath saying that they would actually help uh, LB and I raise Moses. So it's actually all of our job. So this applies in some ways to all of us. But parents bear the ultimate responsibility to disciple uh, and educate and discipline their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
And this ultimately, as the text says, lands on the father of the house. So my encouragement to you, parents, would be don't boil your children in a vat of pessimism. When you're discipling your children, make sure they know not just that Jesus fed the 5,000 or walked on water or died on a cross. Make sure they know he actually ascended to the throne room of heaven and was crowned the king of all things, which is where he is right now. Make sure they know that his rightful claim on everyone and everything is to be a central part of their story. There are really, really good resources on this. We live in a time where there's so much for us as we train children. Uh, there are Christian Reformed churches of North America that have a creed of sorts. It's called The World Belongs to God. Here are the first six lines. As followers of Jesus Christ, living in this world, which some seek to control, and others view with despair, we declare with joy and trust our world belongs to God. So you can teach your kids that paragraph. So your children will actually be confronted with a thousand different stories about who they are, about where they are, and about what they're for. Everyone's trying to tell your child what to think. If you're not trying to tell your child what to think, then you'd actually be the only one, because everyone's trying to get in there. And parents need to counter the rival stories with the true story, with the good story. We soak them in the good news of Christ, the creator, the sustainer, and the Lord. And lastly, if you decide to partner with a school in the education of your child, make sure your child's hearing the same good news, both from school and home. Of course, Christian education isn't always cheap, uh, but if there is any way you can afford it, you should pursue it. Legendary pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul said, if you have to sell your house to give your kids a Christian education, sell your house. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the stakes are high. If your child spends the 20,000 hours of their education hearing a story where there is no king or where they are the king or where they, where they can choose their own king, if they spend that 20,000 hours hearing that story, then we actually wouldn't be surprised if they started believing it. Raise your kids by telling them a better story, and if they go to school, send them to a school that tells them that story too. Third point of application here, prayer. So the lordship of Jesus Christ should lead us to pray well, shouldn't it? And we heard this in Isaac's prayer earlier. Now, we should actually pray, when we pray for the world, we should pray uh, for total obedience to King Jesus in the world right now. Now, I wonder if that makes you feel a bit strange, praying for that sort of thing. I wonder if that grates you even a little. Should we really be praying for total and immediate obedience to Christ Jesus right here and right now? All people, all nations, all governments, corporations bending the knee, should we really be praying for that sort of thing? Well, I'd put it to you that that's exactly what we should be praying for, because Jesus told us to pray that way, didn't he? Do you remember this part of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10? It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's the third petition. The third thing we're told to ask God in this exemplary, exemplary prayer given to us by Christ is that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, have a think about this, Soul Church. To what extent do you think Christ's will is being done in heaven right now? And that's the sort of question when, when you think about it, it actually pretty much answers itself. 
doesn't it? Of course it's being done. It's never not being done in heaven, is it? Christians, we've been assured of the victory of the kingdom of Christ. We actually are to pray daily that we'd see that kingdom advance. Some Christians are very pessimistic about the state of the world. Uh, They revel in these ideas that Christianity will get beaten from pillar uh, to post and that as time goes on, the intensity of the hatred towards the church is only going to increase. They live in a constant flinch, waiting for the knockout blow to come from the unbelieving world. Well, actually, God, who answers prayers, has told us to be constantly praying, not just that persecution would slow down, not that uh, we could just have another 10 years before we get carted off and locked up for our faith, but that his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, would actually take over. That's what he wants us to pray for. We're not just to pray defensive prayers. Dear Lord, let us help, uh, let, help us not to get beaten too badly today. We're to pray offensive prayers, seeking to take the ground as we pray for the kingdom of our Lord Jesus to take over. Fourth application point, four of, of six. Fourth application point, don't be anxious. So my, my fourth point here is a call against anxiety. If the, if the statistics are to be believed, Soul Church, we actually have unprecedented rates of anxiety in our society. Let me encourage those of you who uh, struggle with an anxious disposition to fight the temptation of anxiety by remembering that Jesus is on the throne right now. We can actually often feel anxious when we feel like our life is in a tailspin and it's flying out of control. And in a very real way, yes, it might be out of our control. But we know as Christians that it's not out of God's control. Life is always in God's control, isn't it? Jesus is always Lord. And rather than trying to fix everything and being anxious when we can't, we follow the words of the Apostle Paul, who says this in Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we trust in God who is in control even when we're not. As a quick aside there, uh, and, and a sort of an application or a, a, a parallel application at that point, there is a species of anxiety, actually, that we can actually fix um, just by being a little bit more organised. Uh, I know I felt anxious as a teenager Uh, Because I was always forgetting things and running late. Now, I didn't actually need hours and hours crying out before the throne of God to fix that anxiety. I actually needed a diary and an alarm clock. Uh, And I'm actually glad God didn't take away that anxiety uh, because that was just a sign that I wasn't doing things very well uh, with my time and my energy. So if you feel anxious, uh, prayer isn't the only answer. Have a look at your life, seeing if there's a place where you're living unwisely, and then see if you could change your behaviour. For example, as I said, if, if, you're, always, if you're anxious because you're always feeling taxed, you're run down, maybe that's not necessarily a sign that you need to ask God for more energy. Maybe God's saying, well, actually, you're doing too much stuff and you need to slow down. There's a species of anxiety that should cause us to look in and introspect and see are we living a wise life? But of course, with all anxiety, we must remember, Jesus is Lord. He sits on the throne. It's all under his control. My my second last, my fifth application point here is we must remember the Lordship of Christ in evangelism. 
Now, we can get evangelism wrong very easily, very easily on this front. Now, many Christians, we have a heart for sharing the good news. We want to see people become Christians. We're overjoyed when they do. Uh, And we know the great text. This has been one of the great texts of the last 10 years for me, the Great Commission. Uh, Many of you have heard it. It says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now the question that I'll ask at this point is, is that actually the Great Commission? Have I changed it? Have I mucked it around or muddled the words? Well, I haven't necessarily changed the words, but I have left a chunk of it off. I've omitted a section. I wonder if you can see what it is. See, the text there starts with a therefore. When we see a therefore in the Bible, we always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Let's have a look. Let's have a look at the actual Great Commission. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See, when we make disciples and we think about making disciples, soul church, it's not enough to go. We must, therefore, go. We must go because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. See, Jesus here, he's actually saying, I'm the king. I'm the king of heaven and earth. There's no authority that extends further. There's, there's, there's no uh, authority that reaches higher. Now go and make disciples. That's what he's saying. We must keep this high and exalted view of Christ as we seek to spread the good news. Sometimes we can really get that wrong. I'm guilty of it myself, actually. Uh, we can treat Jesus like he's our awkward friend at the party. Who's a little, he, just, he just doesn't quite fit in with the friends that we want him to meet. And we can approach it with a sort of attitude where we're going, yes, this is Jesus. I know he doesn't quite get the social cues. He says stuff that we shouldn't say. He's a good guy if you got to know him. He's, 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 he's kind of an all right dude. And which you can imagine at that stage, Jesus looking down from the throne and going, what do you mean kind of an all right dude? He said, I'm, I'm actually the king. Why are you apologising for me? Is it true that if we evangelise without remembering that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, our efforts can actually be doomed from the start? If we ask people to come to Jesus because he's interesting, they'll leave when they lose interest. If we ask them to come because he's exciting, they'll leave when they find someone else exciting. If we tell them to come because he'll give them what they want, then they'll leave when they don't get what they want. We must be clear. When you come to Jesus, you actually come to a king. Yes, he's a king who invites you in to a saving personal relationship. But Jesus isn't a politician who needs your vote. You wouldn't be supporting him if you signed up. You wouldn't be doing him a favour. We need to be clear as Christians about who's doing who the favour. God in Christ is doing us the favour. Don't be ashamed of him. Don't apply makeup to Christ where you think his blemishes might be. Jesus doesn't need to be beautified or apologised for. He simply needs to be proclaimed. So, Soul Church, when you think about Jesus, what do you think about? What immediately comes to mind? What image are you pulling up? And it's my hope that as you think about Jesus, you wouldn't just think about his earthly ministry. 
but you'd be able to bring to mind the courts of heaven, where Christ has been enthroned for the last 2,000 years and where he will remain as exalted king until he returns to judge the living and the dead. And in the meantime, he'll be putting the enemies under his feet. Now, I've actually applied the doctrine of the lordship of Christ in a few separate ways, but there's much more to say there. I urge you, Soul Church, to continue on with conversation, chat about this with one another. Um, This is something that we can't talk enough about. I'm convinced of it. I pray that as you walk out those doors tonight, you would know not only that Jesus loves and he heals and he saves, but that Jesus reigns. Our Father and God, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he lived a perfect life on our behalf. We thank you that he died a death so that all those who trust in him may receive fullness of life and life forever. We pray that when we think of him, we would understand that he is king over all things, that we would have a reverence and a fear and an awe that is befitting the king of the universe. We ask this because we know that Christ himself is worthy of it. And so we ask it all in his name. Amen.